We are, um, as I said, in, in Mark 7. Last week, Pastor Mike, who prayed, did our prayer of praise today, Pastor Mike did a fabulous job of looking at the first half of Mark 7, where we considered uh, the significance of how the Pharisees, that religious group, treated their, their traditions and elevated them over God and His Word, so much so that they themselves did not follow the things God actually said. And so while they sort of pointed the finger at other people, they themselves were the ones who weren't, on a whole, actually right with God. Now, that'll be important as we lead into the text today. Uh, If you're new with us, we are working our way this year through the book of Mark, story by story, in order to get to know Jesus better. And in each section in the book of Mark, the author, Mark, who likely got most of his information from Peter by interviewing Peter. Mark is pressing us to ask two things in every passage. Number one, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And number two, what is the proper response to him? So who is Jesus and what is the proper response to him? I'd encourage you this morning to reflect yet again on those two questions as we look at another passage. Consider those questions with diligence and with urgency, because there is no more important issue to sort out in your own life. That is, deciding who you believe Jesus is, and then whatever you decide is going to determine your response. I'd like to read the passage for us in in its entirety, and then we'll walk back through it uh, together. So look with me, if you would, starting in verse 24. And from there, he, this is Jesus, he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and didn't want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the, little, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned to the region, from the region of Tyre, and went through Sidon to the, city of, to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers in his ears And after spitting, touched his tongue. That's weird. (laughs) And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephthatha. Something like that. That is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, 
But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf hear and the mute speak. With back-to-back miracles, God intends for us this morning to learn a single compelling lesson about extravagant grace, a grace that is available in Jesus through the urgent pleading of a Syrophoenician mother and the intercession of Gentiles for a disabled man. We encounter tremendous, even overwhelming evidence that the grace of God is available to all who believe. The grace of God is available to all who believe. Friend, whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you've done, there is grace available for you. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, there is grace available to you in Jesus. As we reckle this morning with reckon, not reckle, this morning, can you tell I had a week off? Preached a wedding last weekend, and you say the same thing at every wedding. So my tongue has not been uh, used to this. As we reckon with this scandal of grace, I would encourage you to see the pleading pagan mother and this begging bunch of Gentiles as our guide into the heart of Jesus and into the vastness of the scope of God's kingdom. To do so, we'll just consider them in that order, first this pleading mother and then the begging bunch of Gentiles. And frankly, the first maybe half of this sermon is going to be rather hard to hear. Hard to hear because in order to grasp the significance of Jesus' statement that seems so offensive to our ears, it'll take some work at looking at the background. So I'd invite you just to hang with me through that first half, and then in the second half, I hope you'll see some real sweetness in the application of the passage. So for some undisclosed reason, most scholars think either Jesus needed a rest and so he went out of Israel, or that he was taking the disciples and instructing them. And I see no reason why it couldn't be both of those things. But for some reason, we're not explicitly told Jesus headed out of Israel. This is something he did not often do. In fact, hardly ever. And he headed north into the region of Tyre and Sidon. Historically, that region was full of cities that were Canaanite strongholds. Now, for some of us, that means nothing. For, For others who have been blessed to spend time in the Old Testament, you'll know that the Canaanites were the arch enemy of the Jews in much of the Old Testament. So these are areas in which the disciples would never go. They would be thought of as full of unclean people. That's the connection to the text last week. But Jesus led them there. And as we look at verse 25, it says that immediately upon entering, a woman whose daughter had a demon approached Jesus. We don't know her name. We don't even know her daughter's name. 
But what we do know is that she's identified as a Syrophoenician. Now, that means nothing to us. But let me explain, because it's important to the story. What that means is this mother was a Greek speaker from a town called Phoenicia, which was in an area called Syria. Oh, thanks, pastor. Now, what did that mean? Well, the parallel account in Matthew tells us that ethnically she was also a Canaanite, which the Jews considered the worst people group among all the Gentiles. This is like if you were to put people on a a scale of badness, this is the worst. The Old Testament overflows with stories of the Canaanites' idol worship and their constant battle with the Jews. Many of the Jews' problems in the Old Testament existed because they commingled at times with the Canaanites. I don't believe intersectionality is a helpful way to categorize people. But if it was, this woman would be the chief example. Because in terms of being included with the people of God, she had everything stacked against her. She's literally a nobody. Maybe that's why we're not given her name. Yet when she heard Jesus was near, she went to him straight away. Why? Well, because she must have known something about him. She must have heard evidence of who he is and what he's done. Apparently, her child was being tormented by a demon, and no one had been able to help her. No doubt she had tried literally everything anyone recommended. And so she went down to Jesus, fell down at his feet, and pleaded with him to help, help, help. The uh, Anglican pastor J.C. Ryle wrote this about this woman, quote, hopeless and desperate as her case appeared, she had a praying mother. Where there is a praying mother, there is always hope. Mothers, take your kids to Jesus. Lift them up in prayer. Beg for God to be merciful to them. Ask for his help. That is the most important thing you will ever do as a mother. She is a tremendous example in that regard. This pagan mom begged Jesus to intervene. And yet, Jesus responded in a way that could be mischaracterized as dismissive, even cruel. To misunderstand his response is to misunderstand the essence of the entire story. Now, what am I talking about? Well, obviously, verse 27. There is on the ground in front of him a woman on her face by his filthy feet begging in tears, help my daughter. And Jesus says to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Children is a reference to the Jews. 
dogs signifies non-Jews, specifically the woman and her daughter. That's not a compliment. Jesus isn't calling her his D-A-W-G. And the disciples are not in the background saying, who let the dogs out? Who, 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 who? That is not what's happening. I have a book um, at home with the title, Jesus Mean and Wild. Oddly, when I looked in that book this week, it doesn't have a chapter on this paragraph. This would be the paragraph to pick. In the ancient world, dogs were not household pets. They were not man's best friend. They were filthy, wild scavengers. They were disgusting. They were unclean. They were the bottom of the animal kingdom. And so, when Jews who had disregard for Gentiles thought of them, they thought of them as filthy, unclean, wild animals. Now, what's your reaction to that? Maybe if you're new to the Bible and you've had a little bit of exposure to Jesus, most everything you've heard of has been amazing. Like, this almost seems too good to be true. If so, then this text may shred everything you thought you knew about Jesus. It wouldn't surprise me at all if somebody got up and left today. Not to go to the bathroom, but to go home. This is offensive, Jesus. But before you give up on Jesus, give Him a fair hearing. Because this might not be what it seems upon first glance. Did Jesus intend to insult her, or is something else going on? It's to that question I want to spend a few minutes, and I promise we'll get to the significance of this for us. I don't believe at all that this is a cruel insult, although it seems like it on the surface. I think it's an invitation for a mother to get more than she asked for. I'll bet packaged in a way that is a bit odd. I told you. <laughs> a, a first key to understand, let me give you two clues, okay? Two clues that this isn't what you might think it is. This isn't Jesus being cruel. It's rather Jesus giving her more than she wanted. Two clues. Number one. A first clue to seeing Jesus' intention is bound up in the little word first. If you look at verse 27, this would be a very different story without the word first. But the word first is there. Jesus said to her, let the children be fed first. He's talking about chronology. Jesus' disciples, let alone the common Jew on the street, would never have included that word. They believed the Messiah came for the Jews alone. That was the common belief in the day. 
We are God's people. He made the covenant with us. Everybody else is bad. That's what many, many, many people thought. Jesus drops a hint with the word first that grace is open even to Canaanite women from Phoenicia and Syria with the little word first. So we hear the story and we're like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad I didn't invite my friend to church today. (laughs) But the disciples would have heard this and scoffed. They would have been offended because there's an indication that she could be included. Do you see that? If you've ever been in a completely dark room, if there's light in the next room and the door isn't sealed, then that little bit of light around the crack is like all you can focus on. When Jesus dropped the word first, he's shining the light in the next room, inviting her in. The second clue that Jesus' statement isn't designed as an insult is this reference to bread. It says it's not right to take the children's bread. Now think back with me a couple of weeks ago. Jesus is out with his disciples and a large crowd gathers and he teaches them all day. The disciples say, send them away. They need to go eat. Jesus says, you give them something to eat. They are clueless and then Jesus uses five loaves and two fish to feed 5,000 plus people. The next story we we then studied together is Jesus walking on the water. They're terrified because they don't understand the significance of what Jesus is doing. And And Mark tells us they're confused because they didn't get the lesson about the bread. Then Mike taught us last week about uncleanliness. And now we come today to another story of bread. Next week... We're going to hit the feeding of the 4,000. So this is the second time Jesus feeds a massive group with bread. It's like the logo for Jesus should be Olive Garden. There's bread all over the place. Now think with me, okay? The, The way the material is gathered in the Gospels, in Mark, is brilliant. If you want to understand what's being said, you can't just look at individual stories like this. You've got to see how they relate, how they hang together. What's the golden chain that connects them? So we've got this feeding of 5,000, this feeding of 4,000. The disciples don't get the lesson of bread. And then there's this thing with bread. What's up with all the bread? other than I'm salivating, wanting some sourdough, even as we're speaking. Why? What's going on with bread? Between the two feedings of Mark 6 and Mark 8, this story falls. Bread is very often in the Bible a symbol for the blessings and the provision of God. Now, why bread? Well, because that 
that was the staple. They obviously didn't have the ability to refrigerate things. And so food that could last a while was critical. So bread was the staple, like candy is for us. (laughs) Bread. Now, the subtle but brilliant point being made is this. And if you don't catch anything else till the end of the sermon, catch this. While the disciples didn't understand about the bread, this Gentile woman did. While the disciples didn't understand, this person who should have been so far gone, absolutely no possibility that she could ever be right with God, she got it. She understood. How do we know that? Well, because Jesus bumped her for the volley with a volley for the slam. He set her up. He knew her faith. He knew what she already believed. He knew she was further along in some ways than the disciples. So he said something in the disciples' hearing that sounds offensive to us in order to set her up so she would say, yes, but even the crumbs. I'll take the crumbs. Do you see what she's saying? She understood grace better than they did. Notice that she takes no issue with Jesus' response. There's no scoffing, no no dismissiveness, no storming out of the room, no protests, no anti-tweeting. She responds with understanding. We feel offended on her behalf, but apparently she took no offense at all. Why? Because she understands she's unworthy. She recognizes somehow that the grace of God chronologically came first to the Jews and second to the Gentiles. There's no offense to be felt in that. That's just historical fact. God created a people group, an ethnic group called the Jews. And through them came the Messiah. They knew of the grace of God first. But it wasn't only for them. It was to spill out from them to everybody else. We read today, in our scripture reading from Romans chapter 1, where it says that very thing. I am not ashamed of the gospel of... I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. First to the Jew, then to the Greek. She knows Jew and Gentile both are unworthy. And so to her, chronology is inconsequential. Who cares? She simply wanted the grace and power of God whenever and however she could get it. Those are the two reasons why I think this passage that seems to be such an egregious, nasty offense by Jesus 
is exactly the opposite. Jesus took pleasure in her response. She didn't pound her fist on the table and say, I demand my place at the table too. No, she simply said, I just want what's left over. She was content with that because even the tiniest morsel of the grace of God is more than enough. Jesus appreciated her response. He knew her faith. She heard, he heard the humility it took for her to say that. He appreciated her grasp on grace, and thus, without even needing to go to and place his hands on her daughter, she was instantly better. What the disciples didn't grasp and the unclean Pharisees even more didn't appreciate, this Gentile mother comprehended. This paragraph exists to tell us this, the grace of God in Jesus Christ is available even to unworthy outsiders. There is no better news being told anywhere about anything today. Jesus turns dogs into children. No ethnicity, no people group, no if you've sinned in that way excludes you. All who humble themselves repenting and believing will, will encounter the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Now, the story of the healing teaches the same thing. And there's nothing particularly scandalous here, so we can look at it quickly. Jesus left the region of Tyre and Sidon for that of the Decapolis. Decapolis refers to a geographical area on the north and eastern side of the Sea of Galilee made up of ten Gentile cities. Police is the word for city. Decapa return, refers to ten. It was a Gentile area and thus another place the Gentiles wouldn't go. They seemed to think, I go there, I get unclean. They misunderstood. A crowd gathered rapidly and people knew something of Jesus' grace and power. So they brought a person there who couldn't speak and couldn't hear, and they begged Jesus to help. Jesus, in overflowing compassion, healed that man too. Now, since the man couldn't hear, and Jesus wanted him to experience the miracle of the healing in process, then Jesus stuck his fingers in the man's ears. He spit. I don't know what he spit on. That would make a great conversation for gospel communities. And then he touched his tongue. Now, in our staff devotional a few days ago, as we were talking about this passage, Pastor Mike said, Jesus invented the wet willy. (laughs) Now, this is odd and gross, but Jesus identifies with the man because he touches him. Jews didn't touch Gentiles. And Jesus touches those parts of the body that weren't working right. So so as to say, the power in this finger can fix 
a problem that you have that nothing else can fix. Now, how does this story relate to the last one? Well, it shows us the exact same thing. Because Gentiles weren't people worthy of healing. They're outsiders. We don't care how they are. You're the, you're the king of the Jews. Do you see? Now, notice in verse 32 the unusual reference to the man having a, quote, speech impediment, end quote. The Greek word used here for the man's disability is only used that one place in the entire New Testament. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's only used there one time. And I think Mark is telling us those two passages are indelibly linked because it's a very odd word. It means essentially that the, not that the man couldn't speak at all, but that he couldn't speak right. So he probably had come down with some kind of sickness that caused him to lose his hearing, which then, if you can't hear, then you lose the ability to speak correctly. So he probably knew what it was like to hear and speak and then lost it. Can you imagine? It would be absolutely horrible. Now, that odd word is also used in a passage about what God said God would do when He came. When He came in Christ. It's Isaiah 35. It'll be here on the screens. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. That's the way back in Isaiah. Hundreds, 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 hundreds of years before Jesus came, God said, God Himself is going to come to deliver His people. And what's going to happen when He does? That. That's what's going to happen. And now Jesus is in Gentile territory, and He says, Why? Because He's that one. And he's doing it not merely for the Jews. He's doing it for the unclean Gentiles too. Why? Because the grace of God in Jesus Christ is available even to unworthy outsiders. Even the dogs. Now, you did great. Thank you. Would you consider with me for just a few couple of, a few minutes just a couple of moments. What is the significance of these passages for us? In a culture where we make no assumptions that some ethnic groups deserve God's grace and others don't, can you imagine how fast you'd be canceled if you said that? We rightly can sniff that out from a mile away and want nothing to do with somebody that thinks that. What's the significance of these stories for us? Or to put it a different way, because we're so far removed culturally from this way of thinking, 
How could we apply these texts in our own lives? I'd like to give you three very specific, concrete ways. I don't normally do that because the Word works itself out in lots of different ways. But I think this deserves specificity. And so would, would you think with me about three concrete, specific applications? Number one, come to God asserting your unworthiness, not your rights. This will be the most significant of the three. The predominant worldview in the United States today is something called expressive individualism. You may not know that term, but you have been very, very, very deeply impacted by it. Everything we're taught has its roots in that system of thought. It is literally the air we breathe. One of the central tenets of expressive individualism is that you find your identity by asserting whatever you believe is true about you on the inside. And that you even conform your body to what you think and feel inside rather than looking at yourself and that determining, for example, your gender. That's one example. No one has the right to question if something you feel inside is objectively true or not. If you take it in an extreme form, I could say, I identify as a nine-foot Chinese man. And expressive individualism demands that you agree with me. Now, we're not quite there as a society, but we're only a half a step back from that, okay? What your right is, is grounded in nothing but what you want. That's it. Recognize with me this morning that this is not how the Syrophoenician woman approached Jesus. When she had the opportunity to, she did not demand her right. She didn't say to Jesus, it's wrong for you to call me a dog. Not only are you sexist, far worse, you're racist. It's my right to have a daughter who's whole. That's not what she said. She instead of her own unworthiness. She laid aside any sense of rights because she knew she didn't have any. And she said, Jesus, help me. You're right, Jesus. Help me anyway. Not on the basis of my rights, but on the basis of your tremendous worth and grace and power. Friend, I fear that we experience rather little in everyday life with God because we're too often demanding our rights instead of embracing our own unworthiness. Identifying your identity with your rights 
is toxic for your soul. If you want to be right with God and receive His help in everyday life, you've got to come to see that you relate to God on the basis of your need, your need that you can do nothing about, and His love and mercy and power and care. The only thing we bring to God is our own unworthiness. He brings everything else. And nowhere is this seen more clearly than in salvation itself. Number two, I want to encourage you to nurture a heart for every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. Nurture a heart for every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. Jesus came to build a kingdom from among all the nations. God is most glorified by having a people for Himself made up of some from every ethnicity. And the world is broken when it comes to race relations. We need only to look at the shooting in a grocery store a few weeks ago. A kid drove hours to go to a place where he had hunted out black people like animals in order to mow them down because of the color of their skin. And that didn't happen in 1930. That happened in 2022. That someone would walk into a grocery store and murder strangers due to the color of their skin is absolutely devastating. A few of you hearing me say this are African American, but most of you aren't. How would you feel when you go to Fry's for the next month or two or three? What's going to be entering your mind? I'm all for things like gun control, but that's actually putting a Band-Aid on something that needs open-heart surgery. Philippians 2.3 tells us to think of others as more significant than ourselves. This isn't more complicated than that. If you've been loved by God, then you have a source of love for others that literally will never run dry. Because God's warehouse is always in stock. There's always more grace and love for others. If you get the first point of application, you inevitably get the second point. Because you're not right with God based on anything in you. We have an incredible blessing as a church being located in a city that's a, a, a crossroads for the world. During the school year, every Friday night, right in this very room, this room is full of unbelievers from around the world. Have you ever come? Do you know that they'd love more volunteers? It's probably the easiest place to serve full of friendly people, happy to hear your silly stories, and ready to listen when you talk about Jesus. It doesn't get more simple than that. 
Every Sunday, a couple dozen international students and scholars attend. It's great that we have missions, partners around the world. That's part of what every church should do. But you can go on a mission trip every Sunday morning. Are you making the most of the opportunity to bear witness to the grace of God? When was the last time you had one of these precious people in your home? Do you know the majority of the 13,000, 14,000 internationals that go to ASU, their number one thing they want to experience is to visit the home of somebody who lives here, and the majority don't ever get it a single time. Do you know there's enough of that, enough of us, that we could, I think, literally solve that? God's heart is for all the nations. Ours should be as well. Number three, never consider anyone an unsavable outsider. Friends, Jesus turns dogs into children and sickness into health. He can do anything with anyone. If God can save you, God can save anyone. Search your heart this morning for any latent prejudice against, quote, outsiders. There's all different forms of this. But who are the people that are inherently unlovable to you? Honestly, I believe if we look long enough, most of us would have some version of that somewhere in our own hearts. Maybe it's the people who harmed you in some way. Make a commitment today to start praying for the salvation of those people. Look for ways to serve them in everyday life. You will find your own weight in life lifted as you consider them more important than yourself. And friend, if you've felt on the outside, I want to encourage you today to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is ready to receive you. What He asks is that you recognize He came from heaven to earth. He lived the life that we're all meant to live but haven't in order that he could die on a cross as a substitute for everyone who trusts him. And three days later, he rose again. He's alive, he's ruling and reigning today and will one day return. If you believe those things to be true and you recognize your unworthiness, that you need him, that you can't fix your problems yourself. If you will tell him that in prayer in some way, shape, or form, then God's word says you will be saved. Not after you reform yourself, but right then in that moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word.
pray that it would bear fruit. It would bear fruit in the lives of those who know you, in the lives of those who don't yet know you. And the scourge of racism and outsiderness still haunts us. And our own assertions of our rights, I hear it every single day. God, would you be gracious to us? Would you impact us mightily through this passage? And I pray that we would remember afresh and anew the significance of your death and resurrection to rid us, to free us from the power of some of these most grotesque of sins. I pray this in Jesus' name.